Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Erwin Van, Erwin Plattwut, Matt Martin, and Bailey Hendricks from XRG Technologies. Y'all, thank you for joining me on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you. Can you guys give me a quick introduction of who you are and who is XRG Technologies? Yeah, thank you for having us. My name is Bailey Hendricks. I am a mechanical engineer and the COO of XRG. My name is Erwin Platfoot. I am the CTO of XRG Technologies. Hello, I'm Matt Martin. I'm the Chief Research and Development Scientist for XRG Technologies. I guess I'll give you a little background of XRG. So XRG is a company that specializes in heat transfer and combustion solutions for refinery and petrochemical plants. As the world's grappling with global warming, what we do specifically is we partner with end users to assess their existing fired equipment and develop cleaner, more efficient ways for them to produce energy or other petrochemical products or whatever it is that they are, are producing. We do that by combining industry experts in combustion and heat transfer and then coupling that with the latest engineering tools and software like computational fluid dynamics, finite element analysis, and 3D modeling. And that allows us to develop more creative, environmentally friendly, and efficient fired equipment. And I guess when I'm saying fired equipment, I mean everything in a refinery that's on fire on purpose. Uh, so XRG's vision is to be to be the premier engineering partner in the journey to a cleaner and more efficient world, if I had to summarize it. Thank you very much for that summary. I think that is is a great summary and and really helps helps position what we're really talking about. So we are we're focused on combustion, the the stuff as you put it that is supposed to be on fire. Yeah. So we're talking about kind of industrial heating applications and specifically looking towards refineries. Yeah, I think that would be our our main target audience at the moment. So for the audience and really for me, I'm a subsurface guy, geologist by training. So I I really don't venture into the refineries so much. So can you please give a, a quick explanation what part of the oil refining process are we talking about? Where is this, where is this uh, focused combustion coming from? Sure. Yeah, I guess uh, although we do um, focus on 
some other things like boilers or flares. We have a lot of expertise in-house. Our main focus is on what we call fired heaters in refineries and petrochem plants. And what a fired heater is, is it's, it's a piece of equipment used in these facilities to heat gases or liquids up to a desired temperature. And that's often before they're sending the feed or you know whatever it may be to a distillation column to be separated into the products that we use every day, like gasoline and diesel. Um, fired heaters in these facilities are very critical pieces of equipment that have a major, major impact on the overall plant-wide emissions production and the reliability and economics of those facilities. Uh, Erwin or Matt may have a little bit more to add to that, but I think that's it in a nutshell. So the this is kind of one of the first steps when it comes to the refining process, these fired heaters, warming everything up to to the desired temperature, really the way I think about it. In geology, we always make cooking analogies. So this is really warming up the oven, so to speak, to get it to the right temperature to start doing the baking or the cooking. And so we've we've discussed that the oil is heated up through these fire heaters before it goes into the distillation columns. And this seems like a, I guess, a pretty basic process in terms of building a chamber to to combust to combust this gas, this fired heater. Can you explain to me where where can inefficiencies be found in say these in a fired heater combustion chamber? You're actually right. That this is a fired heater is is really if you look at it a super simple way of transferring heat it's unlike a heat exchanger um, where you have water or oil transferring heat to the the process here we do it simply by an open fire you build a big room you have to imagine that uh, a firebox of these fire heaters it can be as tall as, as 80 feet 80 feet high and 20 30 feet in diameter that's just the combustion chamber and what you do is you just send a lot of fuel and air to these combustion chambers. You'll, you'll put a, a, a few burners in the floor of these heaters and basically make a massive, massive campfire and then hope that nothing goes wrong and transfer that heat from the flames straight to the tubes. Super simple, super basic. And I think the first guys that uh, built heaters like that, I think they were pretty, uh, pretty ballsy to do stuff like that. Um, the uh, the American the U.S. heaters that are are uh, built this way, they are essentially the simplest of its kind. If you compare to the rest of the world in America, about seventy percent of all the fired heaters are what we call uh, natural draft. So natural draft means that there's no um, motive force to put the air into the combustion system or to extract the flue gas from the combustion system. So all you do is you rely on the internal temperature and density. So it has a very low density inside of the unit to draw in the air uh, naturally. That's what's called natural draft. And it's, you know, compare it to how your 
um, chimney works in the living room above the fireplace. You don't have to do anything to it to make the air go into the fireplace or for the for the flue gas to be exiting your uh, stack at the roof. So a natural draft system, therefore, it, it simply works like air gets into the combustion system. It passes through what we call the convection section because the, uh, the, the combustion chamber is only, let's say, 50 to 60% efficient. It can extract that much heat and send it to the process. So to get more heat out of the system, what you do is you put a couple of tubes on top of the combustion chamber and you call that, we call that the convection section or sometimes we call that the economizer. Means that we, we extract as much heat as we can, but we only use it to preheat the process before it goes to what we call the radiant uh, tubes. And then on top of that convection section, typically we put the stack. So three, three steps, the combustion chamber, the convection section, and the stack. So simple, cheap to build, but it's, it's a relatively inefficient way to extract heat from combustion. Uh, when you look at these heaters, a lot of times the, there's a lot of heat still left in the flue gas before it gets ejected to the atmosphere. Um, and, and what we do is, what we look at is, is a, a number called the fuel efficiency. Fuel efficiency is simply a measure of how much fuel am I using and what's the, what's the energy content of that fuel and how much energy am I absorbing into the process. And that fuel efficiency for a natural draft heater by design, and especially, you know, America has a lot of old heaters. You know, a lot of the refineries were built before 1970, and a lot of them actually were built in the 60s and 50s. So a lot of the still existing uh, natural draft heaters have, by design, efficiencies of 80 to 85%. But sometimes, and, and I've seen them recently, several of those, sometimes the efficiency can be as low as 65%. And that in itself, it means that, you know, of all the uh, energy and, and CO2 that you're producing, it could be that as much as 30% of the CO2 that you're producing, it just gets injected into the atmosphere and it has never actually done anything for us. You know, inefficient. Hmm. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting the way that, that, these are not super efficient and it is a very simplistic process. I'm, I'm curious where, how do you, how do you know that these inefficiencies are there and how do you see these different inefficiencies? So there's, there's a, a couple of ways to analyze a heater like that. So the, the fuel efficiency that I talked about is something that can sometimes be simply read off a data sheet. That's the easiest way. Or we can look at the temperature of the stack gas, or we can make a heat balance around the heater and say, okay, this is how much heat goes into the process because I can see the inlet and outlet temperature, and I can measure how much fuel I have and what the composition is of the fuel. And XRG can do all those calculations and make an energy balance and, and show what, what goes on. But um, what I haven't talked about yet is on top of the design efficiency, which is only sometimes 80, 85%, we can have additional inefficiencies inside of the system. You know, when you have um, a natural draft 
combustion process, then you don't have a proper way to manage the flames. And what you'll see is that uh, a lot of these flames become very unruly over time. It can be sometimes due to fouling, due to poor maintenance, um, but, but this is what we see on an almost daily basis. This is what we study a lot. And the other problem with natural draft is that the air flows into the system in an uncontrolled manner, which means that a simple thing like wind can have an enormous impact on how the combustion takes place inside the system. So when I'm talking about a design efficiency of 80 of 85%, over time we see this can be degraded another five to 10% simply by bad flames. People have to turn down the heater to just simply make them run better. So what we wanna do is also, in addition to making a heat balance around the system and see if, there's, uh, if the heater still operates to its original design efficiency or does it have fouling or does it have damage to the system? We can model that. But then on top of that, we can also look at how do these flames behave inside of the firebox? And so when we do that, um, we can, we can do uh, look at something like uh, computational fluid dynamics. That's a, an advanced computer tool that we use on a daily basis inside of uh, XRG. And inside the computer, what we do is we make a 3D model of the entire system. We look at the, the walls of the heater, the refractory of the heater. We look at the floor, the roof, where the tubes are. We model all the, the bends, all the hairpins of the, of the process system. And then we model the burner tile, the burner throat, all the risers, all the gas tips, everything that goes on. So that uh, 3D model, we then divide into a system that we call a mesh. It could be up to millions and millions of little cells that we divide the entire domain, the entire 3D model into. And what we then do is there, there's um, physical, or there are lots of equations that describe uh, the physics that goes on inside the system. It's the flow, the, you know, the velocity, the pressure drop, the, also the turbulence, all the chemical reactions. We can even model two-phase flow, all these things. So for each of these cells, or each of these millions of cells, we solve all of those questions. But it's an iterative process, and it can take thousands and thousands of iterations before all these, um, before all the results of these equations don't change anymore. We call that convergence. And then in the final step, what we do is we look at these millions of results that we have, and we post-process. We, we, we visualize, for example, the shape of the flames or the temperatures on the tubes or where fouling takes place or what the pressure drop is over the entire system. So we can visualize stuff that somebody outside of, a, for example, a fired heater cannot even see because a fired heater, it's hot inside. There's just a few doors that it's very difficult to look through. So you have no idea what flames do. And a lot of the uh, phenomena that go on, the flue gas hitting tubes, uh, you cannot even see. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not a visible type of uh, observation that you can make what happens on the tube or inside of the tube. So with the CFD model, we can now make a three-dimensional colored picture of everything that goes on inside. So that's extremely helpful to make end users, operators, engineers understand what goes on inside of their system. And that's what we can then start out with as a basis for 
optimizing the efficiency of the system and make make new products and new developments to to help these uh, these uh, in, uh, improvements optimizations it's actually it's actually interesting when uh, matt and i uh, we both are are specific experts of cfd in this in this combustion field uh, there are other people that have been doing this for longer but i think uh, he and i have been doing this almost consistently since the the late 90s um, uh, way back when it was mostly like Formula One and you know big car companies that would do this kind of stuff to look at the drag of a Formula One race car or the underhood thermal management of a of a regular car. So nobody used it for five heaters yet. And I think he and I both in parallel we started working on this uh, initially for very big heaters that uh, like for that are used in the ethylene cracking. Uh, plants where just a percent improvement can make millions of dollars difference on the bottom line. Um, and in, in those days, I just um, I wanted to share that uh, little fact yesterday. I had a I had a deck workstation that I bought at my job back then for doing CFD, which cost uh, close to $25,000. And yesterday I calculated it's 500 times slower than the laptop that I'm currently working on. <laughs> wow. 500 times. So uh, uh, back then, CFD was extremely difficult to do, uh, to, to make those models, to create those meshes, and to especially to solve them. My first model that I made of a cracking heater, I think I had to wait three months before um, I got a decent result. And today, wow. and today what, with, with the technology that we have, with the, the CPU cluster that we have at XRG, we can turn around a, a fight heater problem in a matter of days and tell people in no time what, what, what the problem is that they have inside of the unit. So, so, you, so you just stuff. said when you started in the 1990s doing, doing this CFD modeling, it was around three months to get a result, whereas today you can get a result in a few days. And that's yeah. purely, it kind purely of depends. based on... It even depends on the level of, 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 of detail that you want. If, if you want uh, what we call quick and dirty result, which gives you still 80% of, the, of the, the result that you're looking for, we can sometimes do that within a day, a single day. Wow. So, so I'd like to interject here. I mean, something interesting that's gone on in the industry too is, as has been pointed out, we have a lot more computing capacity the world over now. And so before we were limited by computational power, right? But now what we see is the computational power is plentiful to lots of people, but what you're limited by is domain expertise. Um, it's this fired heater world and, and developing the expertise in that area is relatively small. And then if you overlay that with the expertise and the computational fluid dynamics, you're left with... Um, a pretty small population in the world that can perform this work. Yeah, and, and that's what I meant when I said is like um, we're the experts in our domain because, uh, like you pointed out, it, it's easy, relatively easy today to build a model and to generate a mesh and to do the calculations. But to know which physical models to use, how to implement them, and how to interpret the result, results, that takes actually, in my opinion, 20 years. And together, you know, with, with Matt and myself, between uh, him and me, I mean, that's 40 years of combined experience of validating uh, fired heater 
CFD. Uh, there's very few other companies that can say the same. Yep. I completely agree with that, that we, we have this, this technology and the computing power to do these very high resolution, very complicated multi-physics models, but really it depends on having the, the domain expertise and the people who know what you're actually modeling and really are you, are you following basic laws of physics and do your results make intuitive sense? And I think it's, it's the same thing that, that I see there's, for example, AWS energy, they have, they have geologists and geophysicists who work on, on their cloud platform simply to be that domain expertise for any potential clients. And that's, that's how, that's how we work at my company is, is having that, domain expertise and then hiring out the the modelers and the website builders or software designers to to really build out the the vision that we have so that's amazing that you guys not only have the domain expertise but you've been able to follow and grow your your modeling expertise with the understanding of these burners i wanted to I wanted to quickly touch on on two things. First, what is fouling? Ah, fouling is any undesired, uh, uncontrolled collection of uh, particulates of of material that impedes, you know, uh, in in our case, heat transfer. So it could be in the case of uh, combustion, you could generate ash or soot that could deposit on the outside of tubes. And ash and soot, they have a poor conductivity and therefore it makes it more difficult for heat to reach the bare tube and get transferred to the process. On the inside of tubes, a very common problem is that if you overheat uh, hydrocarbon like crude oil especially crude oil especially because crude oil contains a lot of different animals like asphaltines and other very heavy components that very easily uh, deposit but if you have uh, stuff like crude oil and you overheat it above what they call the critical film temperature what happens is uh, the stuff falls apart it cracks it thermally cracks and what happens, some of the cracking products are solids and the solids will simply deposit on the inside of the tube wall and form what we call coke. And coke also has a very poor thermal conductivity. Uh, coke thermal conductivity is 10, 20 times less than the, than the material of the tube itself. So it's, it's basically you're forming an insulation layer on the inside of the tube, which makes the tube very, very hot. And if it becomes very, very hot, it, it's very prone to me mechanical deterioration. Uh, okay. So following is, following is a bad thing, a very bad thing that basically starts, starts that process of dropping that efficiency. That, that's, uh, I guess the importance of that it kind of can't be overstated because the, you know, in a typical medium sized refinery, I think the estimates are somewhere between 
you know, it's it can be tens of millions of dollars a year. A year is what this costs them in operational costs. And if if the fouling is occurring into your, in your crude heater, that can basically limit the throughput for your entire refinery. So this is a it's not a you know a minor side effect. This is a major issue that goes on, and uh, it's often precipitated by what's going on in the fired heaters. That's that's fascinating, and I guess that really makes sense. The fact that at the fired heaters, that is kind of the first step of the entire process. So you want that to be at at the highest efficiency possible, and to be the really to set this the rest of the the plant up for success. I I'm curious. So we've been talking about this this computational fluid dynamics for a while. It sounds like that really is is what everybody should be doing. But you all started doing this in the 90s. A lot of these fired heaters were built potentially in the 70s, 60s, even 50s. How did how does the the industry if they're not using the CFD modeling, how are they analyzing their efficiency and how to improve efficiencies. So this is this is what I mentioned earlier. The uh, the API five sixty. So the American Petroleum Institute has standards, and and that's a little sidestep there. But also the API standardizes on on heater design. So if you want to come up with something radically different, um, it it makes it makes that a little bit difficult to implement because everybody wants to follow the standard, which then is a design standard and new ideas will take some time to permeate into that standard. But that's a side side remark. It also contains uh, an appendix in the back appendix G, which um, which describes in, in excruciating detail how to make a heat balance around a heater and measure the fuel efficiency. The simplest way is actually going to the roof of the heater and stick a probe in the in the stack in the chimney and measure all the constituents so at xrg we also have portable analyzers that we uh, can uh, utilize in that process and we can measure the temperature of the stack gas the amount of co2 or co in the stack gas because carbon monoxide is another pollutant and and uh, efficiency problem that we have to deal with and nox nox is short for uh nitrogen oxides, it could be NO and NO2. And these guys, they are precursors for smog and ozone. So it's relatively easy to simply look at the temperature of that gas and everything that goes on inside that gas and decide, listen, if my if my stack gas is 600 degrees Fahrenheit, it means that I'm not taking nearly enough heat out of it because it could be as low as 200 degrees Fahrenheit and, and to achieve a, an efficiency of well over 90%, 90, 93, 94%. So it's it's not super difficult for refineries to decide and to look at their heaters and 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 see how much inefficiencies are there. I think okay. I think if you don't use the more advanced tools though, the you can know that you're inefficient, but you don't know what to do. And, and by using the CFD, you're moving it from, I mean, right now, basically it's an art without using the CFD. So the, the using the advanced tools lets you move it from an art to a science. 
And if you don't do that, you're always leaving something on the table as far as your, your opportunity to increase your efficiency or optimize your system. Yeah, Matt, I think, I mean, that's a great point. Erwin touched on how you analyze existing equipment, but designing new equipment today to be as efficient as it possibly can be, in, in our opinion, not using CFD is crazy today. So we, uh, we wouldn't recommend trying to design and optimize new equipment without utilizing the software and tools we have that are so powerful. Well, and, and you know, even in the retrofits, the reason a lot of the hanging problems have been around the industry for so long, like Erwin touched on before, is you can't tell what's going on inside the heater. So the, the easy points that we have to measure and optimize in an industry exist outside of what we can see, and you have to use the more advanced tools to better understand the system and, and make those last adjustments to really, you know, finally maximize the potential of any piece of equipment. So it, it, it also kind of depends on what the root cause of the inefficiencies are, right? If, if it's inefficient by design, then, uh, then that's a different thing than when we see uh, an inefficiency because of fouling or because of uh, extremely poor flame patterns, right? And in the first case, that's what I was referring to is, is what you should start with and analyze whether there's a problem there. And then finding the root cause, I absolutely agree that in, in at least half or, you know, the case of CFD would be the appropriate tool. And I absolutely agree with Bailey that for any new equipment that involves uh, low NOx burners and uh, where, where, where we're designing on the edges of, uh, of uh, efficiency, that CFD is absolutely necessary. And that's what we do, right? That's at XRG. There's not a step that we do where we consider CFD or actually doing CFD, whether it's a regular design or checking or empirical calculations or, um, or design completely new heaters, new heater designs and new products. That all, that all makes sense. And I, I think I'm convinced for sure that CFD is a necessary tool in, in the modern refinery in the modern fired heater realm. So I'm curious, using, assuming that CFD is being used, you've made these models, you've come up with a full understanding of what is happening in a specific heater. At that point, what can you do to actually increase the efficiency of that heater? So the lowest hanging fruit is typically adding um, or, or no, it's, it's not adding, it's recovering more heat from that stack gas, right? Um, it, like in my previous example, if it's 600 and I can bring it down to 250 or 200 degrees Fahrenheit, I easily can gain 10% extra heat. Um, so sometimes what we do is we look at the heater and say, well, there's not enough uh, tubes in the convection section and we can add more tubes. Um, but with a lot of times we don't, we, we may have uh, not enough room to put more tubes or we don't have the process to send that heat to. There's nothing to preheat anything further. So then what we say is, okay, we're going to use that heat from the flue gas and stick it in the combustion air because the combustion air is nice and cold. It's very easy to cool that flue gas down to 200 degrees or even less. And, and that's, you know, we can even make it condense and bring it down to almost ambient temperatures if we wish and get close to 100%. But that's, that's a story for another day. Um, so we install a, a, a fan, take that flue gas, pump it through the air preheater 
install another fan and pump the combustion air to that same air preheater, bring that air up to 400 degrees F, and now you have a system that is much more manageable, you get nice and compact flames, much easier to operate, much more fuel efficient, um, you make less CO2, it's less fouling, less maintenance, and so forth. The only problem that you have now is that a higher air uh, temperature, pre it, it, it heats the flame itself. And if you have a very hot flame, you make a lot more of these uh, NOx emissions that I was talking about earlier. And that's a huge problem because NOx in America and, and actually around the world is a very highly regulated pollutant. And um, it's, it's a precursor for smog. It's a precursor for ozone. And uh, you can't have, in this case, a doubling, for example, of the amount of NOx simply because you want more efficiency of the system. So what people have to do is you have to clean up the flue gas. And, and we do that what we call uh, uh, with a catalytic bed. You have to stick another catalytic bed on top of that air preheater. And you have to inject ammonia to clean up the gas and reduce that NOx back to nitrogen. So it makes it much more expensive to gain back the efficiency from the unit. But it also uses ammonia. And ammonia is a greenhouse gas. And Typically, these units, they run with 5 to 10 ppm of ammonia out of the stack. And so, you're, you're, in my opinion, you're replacing one problem with another problem. And on top of that, a lot of sites, they don't even want to deal with ammonia. Ammonia is toxic. It's, it changes the area classifications. It's, it's a nuisance. Also, the catalytic bed, it doesn't stay good forever. Every five or seven years, you got to replace it. So, that's, that's a big issue. So, and this is where we come in and say, listen, we got to do something that doesn't require SCRs. And, and that's where I think we've, we've got some new, new stuff that, that works a lot better. So let me, let me make sure I understand. What you're saying is you can add in efficiencies by, by essentially pulling heat from the flue gas to the most obvious way to do that would to preheat the air going into the heater. But the problem there, while you're increasing efficiency, you're also actually increasing some of your emissions. And that obviously is, it's almost a, it's a catch 22 because you have the benefit of more efficiency, but you have the detriment of more emissions so it that's where the problem lies right now correct and and what you get is in order to clean up the flue gas and install that cleanup station on top of the preheat module the installation now becomes so incredibly expensive that if you have a fuel cost of let's say what's it now two and a half dollars per million btus it takes way more than five years to, to just gain the effect, the, the capital investment, to gain it back from, from the, the improvement in fuel efficiency. So mm -hmm. it makes it an extremely difficult proposition for end users. If you don't have additional benefits, you know, air preheat is often a non-starter. It's simply too expensive to, to deal with. I guess the other, the other issue that goes on is that 
the, and this does have to do with capital and size, but a lot of the, because of the old refineries that have been built so long ago, there frankly just isn't enough space to put in these systems. True. So the, the largest of heaters that are the, the largest polluters in many locations throughout the world, including the United States, may already have these SCR systems on them, but the smaller heaters don't. And they're installed in places that are surrounded by pipes and other equipment. And it's, it actually is, it's not just a matter of motivation. It's physically impossible to install these uh, devices on these heaters. So I guess the, the natural question would be, what, what other options are there? Is there, I guess you, you alluded to, to new ideas and new technology and stuff that XRG is working on. Where, where's that at? And what is that? Yeah, I'll let, I'll let Matt explain that in, in more detail. But what we've come up with is something that not only uh, completely prevents the formation of NOx during the combustion process, but it also improves the overall efficiency to such an extent that we can even send a lot more capacity through that same existing system. Matt, why don't you explain in more detail? Yeah, I mean, those. so, you know, if you lay it out at a high level like that, it sounds, sounds pretty impressive. And if we step back a few steps into the physics of what's going on, I, I think set the stage, it makes sense. We've, we've talked about this NOx and that as we increase the, the temperature of the reactants, we make more NOx because of the higher reaction temperature, right? And so one kind of, I guess, lucky circumstance of these chemical reactions is that the NOx produced depends exponentially on temperature. So the bad part about that is if you increase the temperature even a little bit, you make a whole lot more NOx. The really good part is it works the other way. If we reduce that peak temperature by even a small amount, we can reduce the temperature. We can reduce the emissions of NOx a lot and get rid of these smog precursors and these this NOx that produces ozone. Um, people have actually known this for a long time. All of the current low emission burners that are out there use this principle, right? But the difference in what we're doing is we're actually just moving this thought process to its logical conclusion, right? And we're depressing that peak temperature to a point that we actually alter the combustion properties of the system. And now we have, uh, surprisingly, we've designed a system that has combustion without flame. And uh, we're calling the system Exceed. And this combustion without flame enables us to produce effectively no NOx because the temperature drops below a threshold where NOx is produced. And uh, maybe even equally as important, if not more important, is that the, it enables us to better utilize the assets, utilize the heat transfer service area, so that we can actually increase the efficiency of the system while at the same time reducing the emissions. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just want to share a few quick things for November. First, our industrial mixers here in Houston, November 17th. It's usually the last Thursday of each month, but because of the holidays, we're having to move stuff around. Um, we're also launching a new live stream, OGGN Unscripted, on November 16th. We'll be at the Rockwell Automation Fair November 10th through 11th. You can come free. We'll have a live podcast there. We'll be hosting some panels. And then we'll also be at the 23rd World Petroleum Congress 5th 
5th through 9th, once again, with live podcast and hosting a couple of panels. Uh, for this information and everything else, just follow us on social. Check us out on LinkedIn, uh, Twitter, Facebook. And if you go to LinkedIn, go ahead and join the OGGN Street Team. I'll see you again next month. I'm a little curious because I guess my understanding was that the higher temperature ultimately produces those higher efficiencies and say a, a when I think about about um, the idea of combustion, the best case is to burn burn all of all of that gas that you're inputting. So can you explain a little bit more how does how does depressing this temperature actually produce a, a higher efficiency? Sure, sure. So the, the key thing to uh, distinction here is that the what we really need to do is trace through the system and find the efficiency by, by utilizing the heat, right? And the heat doesn't, that we're releasing doesn't necessarily have to correspond to a local temperature rise. So to return to your baking analogy, which is useful in this case, I think if we if we do not mix the ingredients before we uh, bake them, right? <laughs> if we don't mix up the fuel and the air before we burn it, it, it releases the heat very quickly, which gives you a really high peak temperature, a really high temperature. But it's a it's a given amount of heat. But if we carefully mix the ingredients before we bake them, or in this case, burn them. Um, instead we can release the same amount of heat, but it's much more uniform because it's well mixed, right? So the same amount of total heat is being used or being input into the system, but because it's, uh, nicely mixed and uniform, we depress the peak temperatures and it's these peak temperature regions that disproportionately produce the NOx. That makes a lot more sense and is is a very good explanation and 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 helpful with the baking analogy. So with the with this new system, I guess with this new idea, compared to traditional equipment, what kind of efficiency increases are we talking about? I guess what what are the what are the production improvements, I guess. Yeah. So the, the, uh, it gets a bit complex, but the, the short answer to your question is that we're talking about increasing from efficiencies of around 70% to 90, 91, 92% in that range. Um, and so, you know, this is, and as everyone touched on earlier, it's possible to go to even more efficient than that, but you start condensing the flue gas and it requires a lot of extra equipment. So let's just say 70% to around 90%. And so if you think about that, a 20, 20 percentage point savings on your CO2 production is, is sizable, um, forgetting to use your existing assets when you do that. Um, so that, you know, that's around the order of magnitude, the type of savings that we're talking about. I guess something else to point out is the Succeed system is, is an enabling technology that allows you to go to the higher preheated combustion air temperatures and increase the efficiency. But really to maximize the effect, you want to use a preheated combustion air temperature that preheats the combustion air to the maximum extent possible. And that, that gives you your big efficiency gains. So the, 
Exceed system locally increases the efficiency in the radiant section of the heater and reduces the NOx. And the air preheat system that it works in concert with increases the global efficiency of the fired heater um, to this 91, 92% range. That is a, a significant increase in efficiency. And understandably, there are there are these fired heaters in every refinery. I, I'm just trying to get a scale of how large that actually is. If I guess two questions on that. How many existing heaters could be replaced? And and on top of that, how many existing heaters are there? Just a, a rough idea. So it's it's surprisingly hard to get an exact count, but the, my best estimate is there's at least ten thousand existing fired heaters, fired heaters and refineries throughout the world. And then when we talk about petrochemical plants that make the olefins that we all use, uh, there's even more, right? And so that is. Um, you know, that's a lot of existing assets out there. And if we're going to be realistic about improving the emissions from these uh, plants in the short term, uh, it's not likely that the 10,000 or more heaters that we have built over the last 75 years are going to be replaced overnight, right? Uh, and that's, that is an important change in the thinking on this technology is that it was designed from the ground up to be able to be retrofit onto existing equipment uh, because just building new builds for the equipment to replace everything out there is, you know, it's unrealistic from a capital perspective for the companies that are involved, but also just societally, um, I think we want to move faster in, re in reducing these emissions than the amount of time it would take to, to build new heaters to replace all of these existing heaters that are out there. I see. Okay. So this is really something that you can attach on to existing equipment more as a retrofit or a, as a way to more immediately start seeing improvements in efficiencies and, and greenhouse gas reductions. I think that's correct. I mean, that's how we see it being initially deployed, but you know, we're always thinking here and I think that we, we have designs on the table for new equipment at a well that utilizes technology. So I, the, the fastest impact that we can have for people is by using this retrofit technology to help lower their CO2 footprint. But just bear in mind that if you really want the, the, to maximize the system and get the most out of it, a new build uh, still offers quite a lot. It's uh, going to be a much smaller unit than the existing units. And um, there's a, a lot of other benefits as well in designing from the ground up. So the, the, this mixing technology and the, the combustion technology that goes along with it can be used in two modes. But I do think the initial deployment uh, is going to be in a, in a retrofit type situation for years okay. to come. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I. As, as you were talking about this Exceed system, I was thinking about multiple different ideas, and I just wanted to go through those few thoughts. I wanted to get your, your expert opinion on those. As you said that you can improve the amount 
or the the you can improve the amount of fuel going into the system. Do you have any idea on how much of that you can actually how much increase in fuel you can get through the system? I guess I'm asking about the amount of through rate. Yeah, so the capacity increases, you know, you you can if you think about it, you can read if you have a nice increase in fuel efficiency, you can either use that increase in fuel efficiency to reduce your total CO2 emissions or you could increase your capacity and reduce the specific CO2 emissions you have. So the amount of CO2 that you have per unit product, right? And to the numbers that we're looking at right now, realistically for a lot of systems, we're seeing that you can get about a 50% capacity increase. So this is again, particularly important for this segment of the industry moving forward that if you don't wanna build new assets and you're looking at redeploying assets at various, redeploying where you're doing the work so forth uh, throughout the world um, to be able to get more throughput out of the same units that you already have while reducing your CO2 footprint at the same time is going to give you a lot of flexibility in how you operate going forward. Um, so, I mean, again, equally important is to make this attractive enough, make these changes attractive enough that within the industry, um, you can go ahead and reasonably take them on as the changes on as a business and still reduce your CO2 footprint. Yeah, I, I think that actually can't be stressed enough. I mean, and Matt and Aaron can correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of another way that you can increase the throughput or the capacity of an existing fired heater by 50% with traditional means because with traditional burners, your flames, the fireboxes just weren't designed for that. They, you'll have flame impingement, coil ruptures, reduced coil life. There's all sorts of problems that are associated with that, even if you can clean up the flue gas on the back end with an SCR or some type of scrubbing system. You just can't increase the capacity from a combustion perspective with traditional means. So you have to use something like this exceed system. So it's actually pretty amazing what it can do. That's absolutely right. With Without increasing the uniformity inside the system, you will hit a high metal temperature limit for the pipes carrying the oil, the tubes in the heater, and uh, you basically just can't do it. And so this same uniformity that's used to uh, reduce the NOx emissions also has the benefit that that uniformity prevents you from overheating the pipes carrying the oil. And the, the really nice side effects of that is this fouling that we've discussed earlier is reduced um, if not eliminated. And then also the other nice piece is that you, you're no longer overheating the pipes that are carrying the oil, even if you increase the capacity. Thank you for that. That, that is fascinating to increase the capacity so much. And it really is because of the efficiencies and the, the uniformity and, and the way that you are burning the fuel my my mind is also going to really the way you're explaining it for a for a subsurface guy this i don't i'm not an engineer so it sounds very complex and sounds like a lot of of really intricate details and typically when i think the more complex something is the more likelihood of failure so I'm just curious, what kind of, do you, have you identified any potential limitations on how you can utilize 
this the succeed system and where it may where there may be just locations where it just doesn't work so in my mind the 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 most likely area where you're going to have difficulty applying this is in a fire heater that has uh, requires an extremely large turn down and so thus far what we've seen is that you know likely if um, you're you're going to run, let's say above uh, thirty to forty percent of the maximum capacity on the heater, it's probably fine. But uh, sometimes in something they call a, re- a reactor charge heater, um, for different types of systems, the the heater can basically be idling along, and uh, we can't. That's hard to handle in that case because you just don't have the temperature inside the system to keep it working. But, but, but you, I think I think it's important to point out that the way that we've set up this system is that it actually switches between conventional combustion through the original burners, or we can put in new burners, and the exceed system. And that for turndown conditions, we just operate the heater as the operator would in normal cases. Right, Matt? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really critical point is that the that I think it's important that people understand is that this, since this is a retrofit system, it attaches to your heater and you get to keep the existing combustion controls and combustion system that you have on your heater. And you can actually turn this off and on as needed, right? So there may be situations, rare situations where you can't use this all the time, but even then you could still utilize the system and just turn it off if there's any issue. and that's also important just for, you know, reliability too. If any issue should arise, uh, because you can turn the system off and continue to operate at least at the original rate that your heater was rated for, you can keep your refinery going. Right. And it's, it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to be a critical point of failure for the, for the train because, um, you can shut it off anytime that you need to. That's good to know. And that makes sense. And definitely always good to have in this, in this sense, a fail safe, if there is some type of issue that arises. The, the last thought that was coming to mind was ultimately we are still talking about fired heaters. We're talking about combustion and most combustion. If you're not out camping and sitting around a fire, you you probably have some type of fossil fuel as the as the fuel source. So with with this flameless burning and with the exceed system and the mixing, what about using renewably sourced fuels? Is that going to be a problem or is that something that that is going to be able to be utilized? Yeah, so the interesting thing about that is that as you precondition the fuel in the air in the way that we're doing it, all, all fuels become start to look similar, right? And so one of the outstanding issues in the industry right now is that if you transition over to burning hydrogen instead of the fuels that they typically use, which are waste products left over from the oil it, um, that have carbon, and instead, for example, if you burn hydrogen, uh, the flame temperatures are higher, the flame speeds are higher, and because of this, there's, you know, there's implementation difficulties in using it. 
but the if you precondition the fuel in the airstream before these reactions occur, now all reactions start to look roughly the same. The you get very similar temperatures, you get very similar reaction rates. Uh, the reaction rate is slowed down in all cases, and so you know thus far what we've seen in the when we're doing the design of the of the system in our simulation work is that it basically doesn't matter what fuel you use the we get the same results using hydrogen as a fuel that we do using natural gas for example um the other interesting thing to think about is that that isn't necessarily you know the only uh fuels that you could possibly use you know there's the potential here to actually directly burn ammonia without reforming and you'd have to have some post-treatment on the back end of an SCR that we discussed before in order to handle that but you can directly burn ammonia which would be very difficult to handle with con conventional combustion or potentially you could even use atomizers and you know use a, a liquid uh, biofuel as your fuel source as well so the if you mix everything uniformly enough and we do a good enough job at that, um, then all of a sudden your system becomes pretty fuel flexible. That's, that's very interesting. What about the actual heat and energy content in the fuel? Does that ultimately just end up changing the, the flow rate and the amount of fuel you need to be putting in? Or is that at all an issue? So, um, I, the, the answer is yes, that's true. So it changes the hydraulics or the, or it changes the pressure required to drive the fuel into the system, but the heat content itself doesn't really impact the way that the, the system works because bear in mind that you're mixing everything together again, mixing together before you bake it. <laughs> so it doesn't, uh, your reactions proceed from basically the same initial temperature in every case, regardless of the fuel. And then the heat content is really just going to change the amount of fuel on a mass basis that you put into the system. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was, was I, what I was expecting, but it is, that's one of the things back when I had a diesel truck, I always had to remember I was going to get worse gas mileage using biodiesel because of the lower energy content. So always important to think about when we're, when we're combusting. Also, I uh, want to just point out that if, if a refinery switches over to hydrogen and says, well, I don't need exceed, I'm just going to use, hydrogen, then of course a heater that operates at 70 or 75% efficiency, it's going to be a lot more expensive to use that hydrogen fuel than if that heater were already converted to something at 90, 95% efficiency. So even when a refinery says, look, I'm going to decarbonize and go to switch to hydrogen or some other kind of uh, non-carbon bearing fuel, then it always pays off to have that high efficiency. And especially when you have an expensive a more expensive renewable fuel. Yep, that's a really good point. So where where do you guys see fired heaters and combustion and and where do you see XRG technologies in the fired heater realm in say the next 5 to 10 years as we're going through this energy transition? Uh, 
well, I mean, I guess. I can say Matt is correct. It's going to take a lot of time and money to convert all of these existing fired heaters to something that is more energy efficient and environmentally friendly. So, you know, I think in the next five to 10 years, we're still working and, and partnering with those end users to help clean up their systems. And uh, I mean, Matt, I would comment on what you were saying. It's going to take a lot of time. So we've so, got to focus on the fleet that's out there. Yeah. I mean, I think that, and I was deferring to you or Erwin on that one, but I'll, my two cents, my opinion on this is that the, uh, you know, because of the large install base that already exists, and that we are going to, as a society, take time to transition into lower carbon options, that this is for in the short term, you know, XRG can be supplying the bridge technology um, in order to get us to at least carbon neutral, right? And then as technologies continue to change in the, in the future, I think that there's always going to be room for combustion. And it may not look like what we have today, but the... The, we will require high temperature processes in order to transfer the amount of heat from one place to another to make the things that we want to make as people. And so, you know, given the advanced tools that we have and the knowledge we have of existing combustion processes, we're in a, a good position to adapt and help form whatever those advanced custom, you know, combustion processes and heat transfer equipment is going to look like in the future. That's, I like it. That's a good outlook and a really good point that I think we are always going to have combustion in some way, shape or form. And ultimately there, there is going to be that, that process of breaking down feedstocks into their components to then make the things that we want. So I like that. So with that, I've got a few final questions. With XRG Technologies, you are the the first group of people that I've had on. So, so these final questions are usually pretty targeted, but I'm going to have the floor open to whoever wants to answer. The first question, what is the most important book you've ever read? I I want to suggest the book, uh, A Brief History of Nearly Everything by Bill Bryson. It's, it's a book I immensely enjoyed reading because it covers many, many different topics from quantum mechanics all the way to anthropology. And it, it really, I liked it because it, it shows the struggles of inventors and mathematicians and scientists when they came up with uh, new new stuff for, for the society. It... Um, it also it also paints a couple of um, you know it, it tells it gives us warnings you know it talks about the same guy that invented for example uh, leaded gasoline same guy invented CFKs so there's there's a lot of learnings that we can do there also you know it, towards the end it, it talks about how human beings have become the mass extinction event for many many species in the world so I think. It's it's a it's a good book because it touches so many things, but it also teaches us some important lessons. Now I've got I 
have read some of Bill Bryson's books. The first one I read was In a Sunburned Country. And I actually have that book, the, the Short History of Nearly Everything, on my bookshelf. But I haven't picked it up yet because from what I've heard, it's one of his earlier books and potentially one of his lower rated books. So I'm I'm glad to hear your opinion, Erwin, and to get a a a review from somebody who who has that experience reading it and from another technical minded individual. I, I read it twice. I love that book. I know there's some inconsistencies and some things in it that, that people uh, don't like, but uh, I, you know, with with my engineering mind, it's something that I I really thoroughly enjoy. And I said, like I said, especially if you read about the struggles that guys like Max Planck and and others have endured during their life as inventors and and scientists, uh, thoroughly enjoyable and relatable sometimes. <laughs> Good to hear. So the next question, and I want I want all of you to answer this. When will we be net zero as a society? I, I thought about that for quite a while last week. And uh, just as I thought I had the answer this morning, I saw uh, the UN report that uh, showed that uh, governments around the world are planning an increase in fossil fuel production by another 50% by 2030. So I think it's going to take a long time. So uh, how fast can we permit uh, nuclear reactors? (laughs) You know, there's a lot of technological challenges to overcome and looking that far out in the crystal ball, I think is, is very difficult because if you look at how much the you look at how much organic molecules permeate our entire life and all the things that we do with them. It's, 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 we've got a long road ahead of us, but we can definitely, uh, you know, by doing things like what we talked about today, we can make a pretty sizable change in, in a pretty short term. Yeah. And, and I could be cynical and I could, there's many reasons why I could be cynical, you know, look at the U S political system or, you know, the fact that India still needs to completely develop but for the sake of my kids, I got to be optimistic and do the best I can to, to fix it. Right. Yeah, I find I mean, it funny. I find it funny, Erwin, that a long time is considered optimistic for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, I gotta, I gotta be optimistic against better judgment. <laughs> Bailey, what about you? Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, unfortunately, I think a long time as well, because we first have to get everyone to actually care and quit being apathetic to the current situation. Uh, So we need to start with that first, and then we can focus on how to get there. Yep. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, that sentiment. And I think it is, it is almost exciting and, and promising and op optimistic and inspiring to hear things like XRG technologies and the work that you guys are doing that is not only increasing efficiencies, which ultimately, in my mind, increased efficiency immediately goes to increased production and increased potential profit. But then also, while you're doing that, you are also making those more environmentally friendly, creating 
lower carbon footprints, lower greenhouse gases. So that is one of those realms where I think it is almost, while we do need to be less apathetic about the process, when you ultimately make something that is profitable and driving us towards the same goal of decarbonization and lower greenhouse gas emissions, it's almost a a no-brainer to make that step. That's exactly right. And that's what we hope. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. So the last question, what one question do you have for me? And it can be one, two, or three questions since there's, there's three of you on here. So through the course of this podcast that you've been doing, what's the most compelling technology that you've seen? The most compelling technology, I think the, I think it, it's not a specific technology in that it, there's not, I don't think there's one technology that is going to say solve the climate change problem. And I don't think there's one technology that is a fit for everybody. For example, what you guys are working on has very little relevance to a small independent oil producer. They don't, they sell their oil and then they move on. So they may not really have a need for, for a, more efficient fired heater, but the rest of the world needs that fired heater to work and to work better because of the gasoline that we use or the diesel that we use or the, or the, the oil-based clothes that we wear. So that's a roundabout way to say that the, the most interesting technologies or technology group to me are the the ones that are making that climate impact of decarbonization and greenhouse gas emission reduction while also increasing the production of that end use. So things like what you guys are talking about here, the early on I had Technip FMC on and they were talking about their eye production system that was, it's something for the oil and gas operator that essentially does something very similar where it monitors the pressure and temperature of of the process of pulling the oil out of the ground and ultimately getting it to the pipeline or to the truck to go to the refinery. And it monitors that whole process so that you maximize both oil and gas production while also minimizing the amount of of methane emissions and the amount of CO2. And because it's a smaller footprint, you actually have an overall smaller CO2 footprint of just that system. And then, of course, there's I've had several geology talks on here, geothermal talks, because my focus is geothermal. And we... I think geothermal is one of those technologies that I will I will always promote and there's always new ideas and new resources that need to be utilized as far as a new technology and new ways of of producing that. 
I'll admit I have not had anybody on yet who is really pushing the boundaries of geothermal. I think we are still very early on in the exploration and research and development phase of geothermal. So being an outsider to that area, to me, it seems like a no-brainer, right? I mean, it seems like, why don't we have geothermal everywhere all the time? So that's uh, <laughs> it's very interesting to hear that there's, there's roadblocks or, or things to still be solved there. Yeah, it's pretty common in the Netherlands to have that. Yeah, yeah. So that is the that's the big the big thing that there is really the possibility of geothermal everywhere. The that would be geothermal heat pumps. So everybody could put in a geothermal heat pump into their house, and for every, I think the the. I think the numbers are for one kilowatt of electricity going in, you get something like four kilowatts of heat out for that. Whereas for natural gas, you have a, a different value for a natural gas heater. And that you could do pretty much anywhere. The problem is when people think about geothermal and where they think the money is, is electricity production. And that is a... It's a common misconception and a misconception that that I actively try to to break because one of the largest uses of energy is residential and commercial and industrial heating and cooling from just the the climate control perspective. And so if we want to get the largest impact from geothermal energy that we can, we need to start tackling that climate control. And mostly because that is a it, an area where you can utilize that energy today pretty much anywhere in the world. But if you are a large-scale investor looking for, for a 50 or 60 megawatt power plant, you're not going to be able to find that in in say Oklahoma or Kansas or Missouri. It's just not something that you're going to be able to invest in. Whereas you could easily invest in a ground source or a geothermal heat pump system that supplies greater than 50 megawatts of thermal energy to a town or to a, a large shipping warehouse facility. And that's something that we, we as a community, the geothermal community, needs to really start pushing and really start, start uh, making that a wider known possibility. I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, I think you should actually invite for your next. For your next podcast, you should invite some Dutch people that that uh, have applied that because I, I believe it's widely applied in the Netherlands systems like that. To what make every to make everybody a believer, just have them visit Sky Harbor Airport in Phoenix. It blows my mind. It's a hundred and ten outside, and it's sixty eight inside at all times. So <laughs> it really needs your help there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would be. I guess Sky Harbor, do they use geothermal? 
I have, I have no idea, but it, it always, that's one place where every time I went through it, it always struck me that it, it really drove home and made readily apparent, you know, how much energy we use just mm. to be mildly more comfortable. So <laughs> I understand now. Yeah. Well, with that, those were the last questions. Thank you guys for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having us. This thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys. And thank you everybody for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're still listening, I can only assume you like my show. So please do me a favor, give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple things will help these stories reach a wider audience. And if you want to hear more great stories from the oil and gas industry, keep up to date with the energy industry as a whole, then connect with us on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com to find the Oil and Gas Global Network. If you're in the Houston area, I also encourage you to check out the Canon co-working space. I enjoy working from there while I'm in Houston, and it's also where we host our OGGN monthly industry mixers. If you mention OGGN, you get a free day pass, so that way you can see what I'm talking about. Until next time, everybody, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.